0: The only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. Five, four, three, two, one.
1: Hey friends, I'm here at my office at UC San Diego and I just recorded an episode with none other than Sheldon Glashow, young Sheldon old sheldon winner of the 1979 nobel prize in physics he's a towering figure in physics and a generous gentle soul i had so much fun with him i asked him to give a report card about the state of physics how it's changed since 1979 when he won his nobel prize and you won't want to miss his answer to that question Uh, you'll be surprised at the letter grade he gives to physics and you'll get a fascinating glimpse into a very very interesting character uh, who is going to play a role in my upcoming book, which is coming soon, tentatively titled "Lessons from Laureates," and you'll find out more about that and all the good stuff you are going to learn from these brilliant guests that I'm in, uh, that I'm so privileged to have on the show. Stick to the end of the episode if you want to hear how Shelley lost a dollar and 27 years worth of interest to Eric Weinstein, you'll also find out Shelley's answer to the question that I asked him, which I consider the most important question I've ever asked a guest on my show.
0: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.
1: Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Into the Impossible podcast. I am your fearful host, Brian Keating, co-director of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. And today, we have a very special guest who is not only a uh, really a, you know, an icon in the field of physics of all different varieties, but also a huge science fiction fan. And I hope to uh, discuss with my guest, Sheldon Glashow, Uh, emeritus professor at Harvard and currently the Metcalf professor of mathematics and physics at Boston University. Oh no, I'm also uh, retired from that one. Oh you are? Okay, so do you get uh, two two emeritus salaries? (laughs) (laughs) Very good. In 1961 uh, Sheldon Glashow extended the lecture week unification models due to Schwinger, his PhD advisor, who we'll get into today. And he did so by including a neutral current that operated at at short ranges. We'll talk about that, the Z naught. And the symmetry that resulted uh, was originally uh, depicted as SU2 cross U1, we'll talk about what that means. And where things go uh, from here in physics, perhaps extending if if uh, Shelley has time to SU5 and beyond, we'll, we'll keep it as technical as, as Shelley's willing to go. I've got a lot of questions of my own. And uh, most importantly, I wanna just uh, thank you for coming on the Into the Impossible podcast where we talk about All sorts of matters not just physics but uh, this is sort of nobel prize week where you have on barry barish uh tomorrow and we had on adam reese last week and uh next week we'll have barry is tomorrow barry's on the show tomorrow he's recording a second episode and we also have uh some of your friends and and uh acolytes that you inspired people like frank wilchek are coming on as well as kumran bafa And uh, we've had on uh, some really spectacular guests. Yesterday we had on Lenny Susskind, who has a deep connection to Shelley. And I wanted to start there uh, because one of the things that strikes me about your book, which we'll talk a lot about interactions, it's just a lovely book. It's now about 32 years old, hard to believe. But I remember seeing this book when it came out and only finished it a couple hours ago. Uh, But but it was well worth it. And it's still timely as ever. And I want to get into that, including... This very fascinating scorecard, almost a report card for physics that you gave as an assignment in 1988 when this book first came out and i want to ask you what kind of grade uh, both theoretical particle physics string theory and my field of experimental cosmology what kind of grade we would be getting against these very difficult challenging homework assignments that you gave the field back in 1988 but first let's start with your uh with with your interactions with lenny suskind who was on the show yesterday and Lenny said uh, to give regards to Shelley and say, uh, how's the plumbing job holding up in your 50-year-old house in Brookline, Massachusetts?
2: Yeah, he was here. And of uh, course, we share the fact that, uh, that his father and my father were both in the plumbing profession. <laughs> Actually, my father employed plumbers. And, uh, had a little plumbing concern on 1622 Amsterdam Avenue in New York, uh, which amazingly enough still exists. Uh, although my father died in 1962 and had sold the company to his foreman uh, or given it to him effectively in, uh, in the 1950s. But the white trucks that uh, patrol New York are called uh, Oh, Glashow and Company, and they're still there. It was the same name. As my father always said, reputation is very important. Yes. His reputation lives on as a plumber. <laughs> Mine does not. Uh, <laughs> so I had some plumbing problem that, uh, that uh, I had to call on a real plumber to, to fix. Actually, I didn't pay this particular plumber. Uh, At another occasion, though, it was a Christmas Eve and we had a flood in our bathroom and it was a mess. So I turned off the water in the house and I dredged up my old memories of how to wipe a joint, uh, which is an old way of fixing a pipe. When you have a broken pipe is you uh, take some molten lead and uh, pour it around and wrap it with uh, your hand in a glove. Uh, you sort of wrap the joint with melted lead and it worked. And it also has lasted for now something like 47 years. So I too can still plumb a bit. Uh,
1: You missed your calling potentially as an experimentalist. Uh, There's a lot of piping and tubing involved in the LIGO experiment. I'll be talking with Barry about tomorrow, Uh, the LIGO experiment being a four kilometer evacuated plumbing pipe in uh, Louisiana and Washington. So maybe you could have, uh, maybe can have a second career. Who knows? Following in the family tradition. But uh, the other thing you share in common with Lenny, of course, is that you both attended uh, not only Cornell but uh, the Bronx uh, Bronx Science, which is uh, has mo- more Nobel laureate alumni than some countries on Earth. And I want to first start second with... of them actually. Yeah, and that's uh, really a phenomenal record. Of course, you won the Nobel Prize in 1979. <clears throat> And we'll talk about that and the effect that it had. Um, but first, you know, your father really plays a big role in this in this podcast, and it reminds me of a of a conversation I had with Jim Simons, uh, who is from the Boston area, not from the New York area, but he currently lives there. And he told me once that you know plumbers don't get enough uh, respect and attention. In fact, once he had to call a plumber for a late night repair, uh, and he called the plumber. The plumber comes over and uh, 15 minutes of work he says that'll be uh that'll be four hundred dollars and jim says you know four hundred dollars what would you do i'm a hedge fund manager you know i I make barely thirty two hundred dollars an hour you work for 15 minutes that's thirty two hundred dollars an hour and uh, the plumber says to jim simons uh oh yeah you make thirty two hundred dollars that's what i used to make when i was a hedge fund manager so uh, sometimes uh, we, we should not overlook the, uh, the importance of plumbing, but your father plays a big role. And, and of course, he passed away in, you said, 1962, which is really a year after your really uh, eventual Nobel Prize winning discovery. What do you think he would have made of the festivities and, and kind of the, 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 the level that you ascended to uh, in science? Would he have appreciated it? He played such a big role in your life, as you described
2: Oh, yes, he would certainly have appreciated it. He was uh, himself frustrated uh, because he never managed to go to college or at least complete college. He started in at uh, Cooper Union, but never quite had the time uh, with a young family to feed. Uh, He had to do his plumbing. So, uh, yeah, he uh, he, he would have been very appreciative that he lived Uh, But unfortunately, I lost him. He he had many stories to tell about plumbing, one of which I will tell if I may. (laughs) Yes. He he came back saying, well, one day he was uh, uh, called on by some woman in a luxury apartment in Fifth Avenue. And she uh, uh, called him and said, I would like you to install a bidet in my apartment. And he said, Of course, a B day. I will certainly do that. Let's make an appointment. Uh, and which he did in the future because he had no idea of what a B day might be, uh, being a Russian immigrant, and he just didn't have experience with such things. So he asked his friends and finally was able to find a B day and installed it. And, uh, the woman was very satisfied, and maybe he got $400 for
1: that. Yes, it's, uh, you never know how valuable they are until you need them. <clears throat> uh, but I want to uh, talk a little bit more about the role that collaboration played in your life. Uh, this book, in really contradistinction to uh, Lenny's book, My Black Hole, War with Stephen Hawking, that we discussed on the podcast, um, you know, he speaks of collaboration too, but it's almost in the sense of of wanting to have a rival, not a nemesis like an evil villain, but to have someone that you are trying to always outdo. And I see, you, you know, you talk about your lifelong friendships uh, with Steven Weinberg and and with others as well as um, uh, recounted throughout, and your almost paternal, you know, father-son relationship with Schwinger. Uh, I sense very little of of adversarial or nemesis content in this book, and and I wonder you know, is there, is there a role for sort of a rival as a theoretical physicist that, uh, we often have it in experiment where we're trying not to get scooped. We're trying not to get beaten by other experiments. Does having a rival in theoretical physics, is that anathema to that practice? Or is it something that could be healthy if used properly?
2: Uh, No, I've not had uh, much experience uh, with rivals in uh, theoretical physics. Uh, It's, always been, for me, a cooperative uh, endeavor. Uh, for example, with Steve Weinberg, we, we, of course, not only went to high school together, but we went to college together as well, and were both professors at, uh, at the University of California uh, for a few years together. Uh, we wrote a couple of uh, excellent papers, uh, at least two, maybe three, uh, then we, we did. Uh, fall apart for a while. We had our differences for reasons which are not related to physics. Uh, but uh, th- that's the closest I had, I, I would have to, I, I wouldn't call him a rival. Mm-hmm. I said just someone in physics with whom I had personal differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it's been cooperative all the way. I think, for example, of my long-term relationship with uh, Sidney Coleman, who by the way, was a much more avid science fiction, uh, <laughs> uh, he even published science fiction criticism. He had a, a partial owner of a publishing company, Advent Publishers. Uh, no, well, I have my minor claim is in high school, I was uh, one of the editors of the first science fiction high school fanzine, uh, but that was, uh, <laughs> as close as I came to publishing science fiction. So stay, with, with uh, Sydney, I had my first uh, interesting uh, papers uh, written. We were inspired by Murray Gilmont's uh, eightfold wave theory. Uh, so we showed how uh, you can do things with three-by-three three matrices that others use eight-by-eight matrices mm-hmm. we felt very confident about that, and we had our only eponymous uh, formula, the Coleman-Glashow formula, uh, which was once interesting, Is sort of lost interest today. Uh, anyway, then we came back, Sydney and I went our own ways and did different things for many, many years. And just before he retired from Harvard, he's already showing symptoms of the disease that would eventually kill him we wrote a series of papers on testing testing einstein's special theory of relativity and these were were great so uh, here's a a man that i collaborated with at the very beginning of his career and at the very end of his career Uh, but cooperative always
1: and speaking of uh, science fiction uh if i recall correctly you're related to to this gentlemen uh this is carl sagan uh in finger puppet form Uh, we have to get you a finger puppet version i I have one of him i have one of galileo Galilei, and one of einstein but of course carl sagan wrote science fiction proper hard science fiction as well as being a foremost you know, exponent of, of you know, science nonfiction. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, well, first of all, how you are related to our, uh, the late, great Carl Sagan, whose widow has been on my podcast, as well as his daughter, Sasha Sagan. She's a writer in her own right, so the apple did not fall from the cosmic apple tree. Uh, so can you talk about the, uh, the impact of science fiction on you and, and how it may have influenced you, maybe not, to take the career path that you did take?
2: Uh, well, yes. So, of course, Carl uh, comes rather later in my career than science fiction. Uh, Carl w- was married to—well, my wife has or had uh, three sisters, and one of those sisters, uh, uh, Lynn Margulies, uh, was the first wife of, uh, of Carl Sagan. Uh, In fact, it was uh, the greatest contribution Carl Sagan made to science was to get Lynn, who was a history or literature major, uh, to switch to biology. And she became uh, uh, very well known in biology uh, uh, with a, a, a rather mixed reputation for a while because some people thought that the things that she was doing were quite crazy. Uh, they became textbook accomplishments. And at the end of her life, she was widely acclaimed as uh, as, as a very fine biologist. Anyway, that was Lynn. And uh, that was how I knew uh, Carl. Carl came by once to Harvard. Uh, this was, he was already at Cornell. He was uh, uh, doing research on, on whether there could be life on Mars or something like that. He ran into a, a mathematical problem that he couldn't solve. So he asked Sidney to solve it for him, which he did. It was uh, essentially trivial. Uh, just like Lynn was not very talented mathematically, nor was, nor was uh, Carl. Anyway, the problem solved, uh, Carl wrote a paper, and then Sydney was absolutely flabbergasted to discover that he had written a paper with Carl on the possibility of life on Mars.
1: <laughs> That's every uh, science fiction fan's dream is to is to inadvertently discover some possibility for life on Mars. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, no, science fiction was an important part of my life when I was uh, like, say, 12, 13, 14. Mm-hmm. I, uh, read Astounding Science Fiction religiously from uh, more or less 1944 to the 1960. Uh Well, I'm, I don't know if it lasted that long, but uh, that was, uh, yes, it was very important. For example, there was a column in Astounding Science Fiction called Brass Tacks, which talked about science. And uh, it was there that I learned about the possibility of atomic bombs before the explosions that took place in Japan. Uh, Yes, I can say that science fiction got me, to some extent, got me into science. Uh, My brothers were also responsible in various measures, but science fiction played a significant role. And I still appreciate it. I will occasionally read science fiction, but not that often.
1: Right. Yeah, I always uh, find the the uh, attraction and kind of the limited time available to want to understand more about science nonfiction while I, while I can and hopefully can make some contributions. Um, I want to talk about the role of teachers in your life. You speak very um, in very glowing terms, obviously, about Schwinger. Uh, and 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 really about his generosity of time, of attention, you know, mentoring a dozen students at once at one point, including you. And I, I just, you know, I, I'm an experimentalist. The most students I've ever had is about six, and that's even kind of impossible to imagine. Uh, what was he like as a as a teacher, as a mentor, um, as as a, and not just as a physicist?
2: Well, yes, he spent a lot of time with, uh, by having 12 or 13 students at a time. Uh, but uh, a corollary is that he didn't spend very much time with any one student. Uh, I did not get to speak with him much uh, about my thesis. The When I and my friends uh, invaded his office to get thesis subjects, uh he, he I was at the end of the line, so he gave me something that was uh rather speculative. He more or less said, "Go and unify weak weaken in electromagnetic interactions but uh I had no idea how to do that but i i he wouldn't he didn't have a great deal of assistance to give me, consequently, I didn't manage to get very far uh either i I did a few things which Convinced me and perhaps convinced Julian that that uh, there was a possible possible road toward a unified theory of weak and electromagnetic interactions, but I had not found that road. It uh, he didn't. He was a very kind man. He would uh, uh, on several occasions bring me to his home where his wife uh, would entertain us and serve a very nice dinner, but. Uh, Altogether, perhaps during my college career, I, aside from having lunches where we didn't discuss science, uh, I must have spent no more than two hours with him for advice. And encouragement. Oh,
1: wow, that's a uh, that's a pretty uh, impressively short amount of time. I'm, I'm going to tell that to my students who complain about me spending <laughs> that much time with them per week. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I want to talk also about the role of ego in science and whether or not it is um, not only pernicious as it certainly can be, but but can lead to this you know level of confidence as well to to pursue ideas even when they're likely to be wrong uh you you don't strike me as a person from the the you know what i what i've observed and and you're very can the book is hilarious um you know and and i think it should be required reading i'm mentoring a young a young student actually he's a young child of uh of one of your uh, a person that you made a bet with eric weinstein you made apparently made a dollar bet uh he was telling me that was paid off 27 years later but not with interest. So maybe we'll get into that. But anyway, his son Zev is quite brilliant, and I've assigned his son Zev, who I'm mentoring for uh, for some research projects. He's 15 years old. I've assigned him to read Interactions because it's so good at explaining what was known in you know as of 1988. And depressingly, there's only a few things that have been added to this canon. But the one thing that strikes me is how honest, how hilarious, how um, uh, just how. Magnanimous you are in your writing, and I think it's so commendable. It makes it very easy to read, very easy to understand. And yet, I suspect there is a role of ego in your life um, to really do things and have a courage to pursue things. Can you say, you know, the role that confidence, if you will, plays in uh, in theoretical physics?
2: Uh, the role of ego, and uh, it's it's hard to address that subject. Let let me let me say rather that that what I found doing science to be a lot of fun. Uh, I began uh, doing real science, uh, perhaps as a graduate student. I wrote a paper with an experimental uh, physicist that, at that time. It wasn't a very good paper, but it got me in the game. Uh, the, when I went off to Copenhagen after uh, completing my studies with Julian Schwinger, uh, that was the Neil Spohr Institute. I spent two years there on and off, uh, sharing the time uh, at CERN. But what I discovered at, at Copenhagen was a, a, a plethora of graduate students, uh, of rather uh, of postdoctoral students from many countries, from China, from Russia, from Japan, from uh, uh, Eastern European countries, close friends I made with uh, a Polish scientist, a, a Czech scientist, Italian, etc., etc. et cetera, et cetera. And I wrote a paper with uh, papers with them, papers with, with Norwegian scientists, uh, Swedish scientists. Uh, what I realized is that their cooperation is the name of the game. And, uh, when I uh, went while at Copenhagen, it was at Copenhagen, by the way, in the spring of 1960 that I had the idea of the SU two cross U one theory and wrote the paper in in 1960. Sent it into a journal called Nuclear Physics, uh, which takes its time about publication. So, although I submitted it in, in the spring of 1960, it was published in. Uh, in 1961. So I, it's really in 1960 that I did that work. Question of ego, there it is. Uh, but uh, the uh, the next great uh, 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 moment in my life was meeting Sidney Coleman as a postdoc at Caltech. Uh, things were so different than in physics. I was having, having a ball uh, traveling between my Lady friend in Geneva and my lady friend in Copenhagen, uh, and stopping in Germ- in Germany typically on the way and picking up a couple hundred dollars for giving a talk. Uh, I had a, 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 a and enabling me, for example, to buy a Tr3 yes. uh, while there, so I could commute more easily and more rapidly. Uh, I was having so much fun. Uh, Which is the name of the game, as far as I'm concerned in science, and it's always been that way uh, ever since. Science is fun. The science I did with uh, Johnny Leopoldus, which led to the uh, Glashow-Leopoldus-Miami paper, of which I'm very proud, uh, emerged uh, in part in on the beaches of Mexico while we were both uh, participating in some summer school. Uh, swimming around in the ocean, and he was uh, also a scuba diver uh, as well. Uh, we came upon our ideas and it was it was fun all the way along. and one of the things I enjoyed most about my career in science is there was usually a time when I knew something that my peers did not. Uh, that is to say, when uh, at the time that Murray introduced uh, SU3, as uh, flavor SU3, the Eightfold Way, it was obviously correct, uh, in my opinion and in, in Sydney's opinion. Uh, we knew that this theory was right, they didn't. So we talked all over the world, in fact, lectured about this, the wonderful theory that had to be true. And sure enough, Three years after it was invented, it was proven to be true by the work of my experimental friend Nick Samios uh, at Brookhaven Lab, finding the uh, the uh, well, whatever, the uh, omega-minus particle, the missing particle. Uh, So it's always been fun, and uh, when when I suggested the. my biggest embarrassment, personal embarrassment, was this, that when in 1964, I returned to Copenhagen, uh, I, uh, I worked with uh, uh, James Kane, and we published a paper which introduced the idea of the charmed quark, including naming the damn thing. And I then promptly forgot about that work. At the time that we invented it, I didn't realize that it was an essential step in expanding the electroweak theory that I had previously worked on uh, to make it uh, apply to nuclear matter as well as to leptons. Uh, the theory that I talked about and that Steve Weinberg talked about was a the theory of leptons, and uh, I, I simply didn't recognize that that this this was the key to it all until I collaborated with. Mayani and Iliopolis, and we realized that the charm, um, the charm core could realize its its name. When we named it, uh, I named it randomly. Charm. I don't know why I picked that word, but charm it was. It was a a thing that averted evil. The evil being the strangeness, changing neutral currents that don't exist. So
1: (laughs) you get you uh, explain that in Yeah. That there, yeah, how charm works, it's a, a rather rather charming. And you also talk about um, uh, Eliopoulos, and you recruited him, right? Uh, you were basically one of the uh, people responsible him, for I
2: also recruited uh, Alvaro de Rujula, uh who also uh, was a very important uh, participant in my research career. I was not the, it was the department that chose uh, Howard Georgi, but he also turned out to be a very important ingredient in my career. I think I've written over 30 papers uh, with uh, with each of those
1: people. If you're liking this video so far, make sure to subscribe and hit the notification bell. I put out videos at least once a week, and I'm here to show the human side of scientists, despite the stereotypes we are human beings. Our mission is to increase curiosity and engage a multiverse of magnificent minds. I also do subscriber-only giveaways frequently, and I give away copies of books by my guests and other cool things like signed papers by Nobel Prize winners and so forth. So don't miss out on that. Subscribe and hit the notification bell. Talk about recognizing, you know, traits or, or, you know, potential greatness in a young scientist. How, how, how did you approach it? Was it more just you had a connection or are there metrics? Are there quantitative, um, you know, tracers that bespeak of a potential of a future young colleague?
2: Well, uh, our choice of uh, postdocs was when I was at Harvard it was very... Uh, democratic so basically we discussed the matter and uh, and came upon our our favorite choices uh, we were lucky we hit upon the right people at the right time I don't I can a posteriori explain why we had the right postdocs but throughout my career I and my friends uh, picked a, a long series of, of wonderful, uh to join us
1: and that um the the characteristic that really you know strikes me in here is one of collaboration and congeniality and i wonder you know how connected you are to it in your emeritus phase but one of the biggest blows to physics due to COVID, aside from the awful human toll it's taken and tragic at that but it's the lack of in-person gatherings of conferences you talk of, you know, conference or meeting or sabbatical or travel on almost every page of this book. Yes. And it seems to me, there might be some permanent damage due to physics, at least for some younger generation of physicists, at least I got to participate in it. But I, I feel uh, very, uh, that it's very unfortunate that young physicists are not experiencing the types of gatherings that you spoke about in this book and uh the role of collaboration looms large in this book. There's there's very little I did this, I did this. It's always how when this fortuitous, serendipitous partnership with somebody because of a sabbatical, uh, you know, or because of a conference held somewhere, wow. led to a great paper and a great result. So I feel physics has lost that, and it's not clear when it's coming back. All the all our conferences are remote, like this. <laughs>
2: Yes, and I last this year I uh, I was supposed to be in Italy. I was supposed to be, in, uh, for reasons of physics, I was supposed to be a uh, judge for a uh, a prize uh, in Spain, which had to take place remotely. I was supposed to be in China on several occasions. All of these things had been cancelled. Not to speak of vacations in Mexico and such. So uh, yes, uh, there's no question that COVID has had a terrible effect uh, and continues to. Just today, for example, the schools in uh, New York City were announced to close beginning tomorrow or something very soon.
1: Yeah, yeah, we've uh, you know even in Southern California been quite uh, quite afflicted by it. All our public schools have been closed uh, for a very long time. And I have two uh, two
2: grandchildren, a, a, a grandson and a granddaughter, who are both students at Washington University in St. Louis. Mm. They they're having a wonderful time, but it's not the usual college experience. Mm-hmm. They're making the best of it, and they're going to some physical classes but many of the classes are remote. Yeah. It
1: does um, I want to uh, ask, just getting back to these different uh, personalities that you, uh, you know, interacted with, <clears throat> you talk in the book uh, about, um, you know, so, some people that, you know, for example, um, Schwinger, you, you point out. Uh, how how he was um, you know how his personality lent it, lent itself it was a, sort of a coolness about him a distance about him uh, I see other people nowadays you know um, that that can be really challenging the orthodoxy of of standard standard concepts in physics as I think you did I mean you were one of the early you know, um, opponent. Not I want to say opponents, but but uh, conscientious objectors to string theory, and and certainly I want to get into that. Um, but it, it also takes a certain amount of courage, and I wonder in an age of social media, which I I don't think you have a Twitter account that I know about. No, I don't. <laughs> uh, but you know, the ideas that be, that are originally tentative. Um, might that would have seen the light of day and maybe gotten a little bit more nourishment in previous generations now because of twitter instantaneous you know you can basically almost humiliate somebody's idea long before it gets out of the infant mortality stage and i wonder you know if, if if you've observed anything negative in the trend i mean it's not only you know positive benefits of technology getting better and better but are there negatives to that impede scientific progress, especially in high energy or particle physics that you've observed? Uh, I'm not a
2: fancier of, of, of the social media uh, in any respect. Uh, but I don't, I, I can speak of many of, of deleterious effects that the social media may have had, but not upon the progress of science. I don't see that there's been, that people come up with theories and spread them on social media and and have them take over. No, that doesn't happen, uh, fortunately. We have, of course, we have our own social medium, uh, which is the uh, uh, distribution of research uh, on the web. Yes. Uh, But on, on what's called the archive. Now that is a marvelous development of my uh, my physicist friend uh, Paul. What's his name?
0: Ginzburg. Ginzburg.
2: And has revolutionized the uh, progress of physics because it's enabled people in uh, countries with in poorer countries to be able to access what's going on Uh, every day. They have. uh, Deposited in their mailbox the latest articles that have been written, and it's open and accessible and free to all the world. So that's massively encouraged science, worldwide science, throughout the world.
1: And the ability to teach and to disseminate lectures from Harvard, from MIT, from UC San Diego. Uh, In fact, I want to bring you uh, greetings from uh, my friend, uh, Professor Stefan Alexander, who is the uh, president of the National Society of Black Physicists. And he calls you one of your one of his heroes. He's a professor at Brown University now. And uh, he, you taught at a summer school, I guess, that he attended as a young man of only 15 years old. And nowadays, that such a thing could be done on the internet. And I want to hearken to page uh, 167 in Interactions. You talk about um, the, the dual function of the professor. It's to teach, but also to do research, but actually teaching can improve your research. In fact, you say the best researchers in some countries, such as the Soviet Union, the best researchers are secreted in, in research institutions where they do not teach. And the university professors are not encouraged to do research. I found that ironic because one of my friends is Russian. And he says that if you translate the word scientist from Russian to English, it basically means someone who was taught. It means a person who was educated or it's taught. That's what it means to be a scientist. Why, why do you think of teaching as sort of a secret tool or a secret weapon of the West, at least in terms of improving your research? Uh, well, it's
2: the American tradition and the British tradition that researchers uh, are teachers uh, almost always. It is not necessarily true in countries like Germany, where uh, there have been many, uh, a great deal of research is done at research institutes that uh, do not teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, Germany has uh, not suffered terribly from, from this procedure. I think that, uh, I think teaching and research go together neatly, but they don't have to, they can be separated. And I probably would have done even more research had I not the responsibilities of teaching, but I probably wouldn't have been as happy, because seeing how these kids learn uh, when they do, uh, which isn't always, is uh, is is very beautiful. And I've had some wonderful uh, taught some wonderful students and. That's been a, an essential part of my life. But I don't think it was a key to uh, to, to the researches I've done. I don't think it's that essential. Right. And, and uh, Russians have done quite well scientifically. <laughs> uh, they're segregating their, their scientists and their teachers.
1: That's right. Yeah. And you talk a lot about that, including the serendipitous effect of a delayed visa. To go to the Soviet Union back in 1961 or so, right? That led you to go to Copenhagen. That That's then, right. as you just said, I want to talk about the role of serendipity. Um, you 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 talk candidly about. Uh, you know the Nobel Prize and and the role that it's had in your life and the ceremony even I want to get into that later. But you talk about missing out basically. I mean it wasn't known that it was going to receive the Nobel Prize in 1988 when you wrote Interactions. Uh, but you talk about missing out just barely on the Higgs you know discovery or prediction with um, and we had on the show recently. I had on Carl Hagen. Uh, who has collaborated with my late professor, mm-hmm. Jerry Guralnick at Brown University, where I went to graduate school. And the two of them, um, you know, played an enormous role in the prediction. Uh, I wonder, can you take us back to that time? And, you know, in terms of, like, significance, yes, you didn't, your name isn't included typically amongst the seven or eight co-discoverers of it, but it's clear you had you were on the track. And how does it feel, first of all, to, to, um, to come up to make a discovery like electroweak unification, or you know, SU SU two cross U one, etc. How does it feel to make a discovery like that? Know you're the first person on Earth, but know that someone else is probably breathing down your neck, as did happen in the case of the Higgs boson. Uh,
2: well, <clears throat> funny you ask about that. The uh, I was at CERN at the time that Jeffrey Goldstone was. Uh, talking about spontaneous break, symmetry breaking in the context of relativistic quantum field theory. And uh, then again, uh, the year after that, uh, he was uh, in Scotland with me at this famous summer school where Higgs was also present. And we had wonderful discussions about the possibility of electroweak unification, uh, the possibility of. Uh, of using gauge bosons, using yang-mills theories uh, to describe the weak interactions. But the, the uh, Peter did not really participate much in these discussions because he was the wine steward. He had to uh, take into account the fact that we were serving Hungarian wines and at a NATO NATO meeting and uh, this he wanted to keep this a bit under the table wasn't quite under the table. It was in a grandfather's clock that we stored, a broken grandfather's clock that we stored our Hungarian wines. Uh, so he wasn't part of the uh, discussions. And if had he been with us, uh, he would work with, uh, with, I'm sure, with Jeffrey Goldstone, and they would have come upon the, the, the ideas that became those of, uh, of Higgs and Company later on. Uh, this is just a year before the Higgs did his thing, and so did Hagen and the other five people who have been responsible for the creation of the Higgs mechanism. Uh, that was a discovery that I, I would never have made that discovery, because uh, I was not so much up on the details of the of formal theory, but it could certainly have been done by Jeffrey Goldstone mm-hmm. and should have been done by Jeffrey Goldstone uh, earlier but whatever.
1: (laughs) Yes. All right. You can't, you can't win them all, at least when it comes to Nobel prizes. Um, I want to talk about, uh, about where we are in, in physics and whether or not this influence, which I would say, you know, you were a prime, uh, you know, responsible party for, which is kind of coming up with something so beautiful it almost can't be wrong um and i'm speaking about unification and ever since you know maxwell and even unification of heat and thermodynamics and statistical mechanics as a form of unification all these great uh discoveries in some way that we think about gravity and and unification of curvature um, of space-time they they seem to you know have beautiful elements to them and i wonder you know are we are we reaching the end of the line, uh, it's, it's hard to argue that string theory isn't beautiful in a certain sense, but um, is there sort of a road too far that, that beauty is no longer capable of providing guidance uh, if it ever was? So I guess the question is, um, are we too overwhelmed, as Fred Hoyle used to say, with the notion of beauty in our equations?
2: Uh, I don't think so. I think I would uh, follow the tradition that of Einstein and others for uh, advocating elegance and beauty, that of Paul Dirac was in that tradition as well. Uh, you no, know, I don't think we're done with it at all. I anticipate there will be future discoveries and, and future uh, even more beautiful Uh, syntheses will take place in physics. Uh, We need to know so much. Uh, What I'm afraid that COVID will have another uh, disastrous effect on science, and that has to do uh, with the funding of useless research, because much of the research that we've been talking about is in fact useless. The Higgs bosons have no practical purpose. K mesons, strange particles, which still have no application and we never will. And many of the things we do per se uh, are useless. Uh, Certainly the work uh, that LIGO has been doing, the wonderful discoveries that they have made, the opening up of a new form of astronomy, uh, will have no direct impact on our lives except the appreciation that we are understanding the world a little bit better each day. Uh, there'll be much more. We have so many mysteries, and and the question is the funding. Uh, we've not—the the American government traditionally has been generous, but no, not overly generous with respect to science, and the same is true in Europe and in Japan. Uh, but will we continue to fund these forms of useless science, uh, astronomy, astrophysics, space science, and, and particle physics. Uh, it will seem perhaps justifiably to the people of America that more money should be spent on biology, more money should be spent on on the means to deal with not only this uh, epidemic, this pandemic, but the many pandemics that will come in the future, because we do understand that, that as people travel more and more, and uh, we investigate odd corners of the world, we bring back odd diseases. And there are many more odd diseases that will come in many more pandemics. Uh, Much research is necessary to deal with this. We might uh, encounter a disease that's even worse than what we have now, however bad it may seem at the moment. So uh, money is going to be redirected for Toward uh, uh, climate change, toward other toward toward uh, pandemics and toward other threats to human society, uh, will there be any left over for doing the kinds of research that we need to do? And that, that I don't know. Will there be a next accelerator, which is not all that expensive, but uh, but it is costly. It is tens of billions of dollars will that money appear will the chinese build such a machine will the europeans build such a machine the americans have already said they would not
1: and what about the value of such a machine irrespective of who pays for it um when it's not clear Uh, first of all, if there is a natural target for such a machine, aside from bigger is better, which I find that argument falls flat. Uh, In the case of the uh, superconducting supercollider, and in the case of the LHC, at least the targets were clear, uh, and that there was this missing piece that you talk about back in 1988 uh, that was obvious, not low-hanging in the sense that it was easy, but that It couldn't be otherwise, in the opinions of many people, uh, that the Higgs had to exist and then had to have roughly bounded mass range that was accessible. I think to, you know, I've heard pitches for the future circular collider that will go back to the Big Bang or we're we're not going to get anywhere close to, say, the Grand Unified Epoch that you, you know, really ushered in this notion of Grand Unification. We'll get to that in a second. How would you proceed if you're this, you know, assuming you took your Nobel Prize winnings and put it all in Bitcoin, and now you're worth trillions of dollars, still, would you fund such a a future circular collider, which, by the way, they always tell you the price tag to build a project, but from an experimentalist, we always double it for two reasons. One, you have to operate the darn thing. You can't just build a battleship or an aircraft carrier and just, there it is, now we're not going to use it. It's about 10% per year. So in a decade, uh, you spend, uh, you know, you double the cost to operate it. But not only that, when there's no clear target for the future circular collider, as cool as it is, and I, I don't want to rain on the on the uh, parade or the income stream of my experimental particle physics colleagues, but how would you deal with it, uh, knowing that, you know, bigger is better, but there's no natural target for such a machine? What would you do?
2: Well, first of all, yes, the, uh, the, the Higgs boson cost us about... Uh... 20 billion dollars if you take into account the, uh, the, the operation of the machine for 10 or 20 years for sure. Uh, that may be a lowball estimate in fact. Yeah. So things do get expensive. I can say, what else would you wanna do with your money of course, but uh, there are many good answers to that. Uh, the, my hope is that the theorists will come to the rescue the, there is one question which I think is the central one of the central questions of particle physics, which is not often discussed. And the question is, uh, is there anything else to observe beyond the standard model? There's many reasons to believe that there should be things, but not, there's no specific there was a specific theory. once upon a time, there was the, uh, supersymmetry, which was a nice target and The target was uh, dealt with properly, and supersymmetry as constituted, as originally invented, is certainly excluded, just as grand unification, as originally uh, configured, uh, has been proven to be wrong.
1: Is that, sorry, Shelley, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, my understanding is grand unification, we're not adequately... Um, energetic enough to test grand unification, if it occurs at ten to the sixteen GeV, we might not have any alternative other than the cosmic frontier. Uh, why do you say that? The, that gut. Well, maybe you said as originally constituted, but would you say that still, it, grand unification is as sort of ruled out the way that supersymmetry is?
2: Well, uh, supersymmetry at low energy is certainly ruled out. Sure. Yes. Supersymmetry was introduced for specific purposes and had acquired other specific purposes, uh, such as the explanation of dark matter, and everything looked very neat, except it doesn't lie in that energy domain. It may lie at some other energy domain, of course, but it would no longer, uh, no longer do what it was supposed to do. So right. that, you can still call it supersymmetry. Uh, but yes, supersymmetry as introduced uh, failed, and. Uh, Certainly the uh, expectation was that the proton lifetime would be 10 to the 29th years, and that's been certainly excluded. It's now certainly more than 10 to the 30 or 31 years. Uh, There is no specific target. And that's, again, comes back to the central question. Is there anything else up there? Uh, None of these theories uh, tell us whether there is something there least of all strengther they they uh, are not able to suggest whether there is something that could be found at the next accelerator We've never found well I still have hopes that the Large Hadron Collider will find something interesting I am confident that the superconducting super Collider had it not been shot down unwisely by Congress uh, would have found the Higgs at a much less cost than it the, the eventual cost and would have pushed us to the energies where i would hope there would be something more energies comparable to what would be achieved at the machi- the chinese machines and the and the cern machine that are mere pipe dreams at the moment
1: and but just getting back, thank you for that. Getting back to why you say that grand unification is sort of excluded or and, and analogous to low energy uh, supersymmetry being excluded. Why, why do you say that about grand unification as well?
2: Well, there's no specific target. Again, it's mm-hmm. uh, 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 I say that the, the original formulation of supersymmetry had a, a very specific purpose in mind. And it was worth uh, looking for supersymmetric particles, and uh, they didn't find them. And they pushed. The, it's not. They might. It's quite conceivable that that even the Large Hadron Collider will produce evidence for supersymmetry at some point, mm. but it won't be the supersymmetry that we imagined. And the mm. same is true uh, of grand unification. The grand unification scale uh, could be. Uh, higher than 10 to the 16th GeV, we have no uh, way of being sure whether there is such a unification scale. Uh, would I support, uh, uh, again, would you support building, uh, what is it called, hyper, uh, uh, the, the 10 times larger uh, uh, proton decay experiment? Mm. Mm-hmm. And now remember, we've been looking with the current device for over ten years and finding nothing, and that's yeah. telling us that the new machine, the new detector, if it were, if it existed, uh, would no, have no chance of finding proton decay for the first year of its operation, right. not even an indication
1: of it. I find it hard to justify instruments that have only uh, a single use case. In other words, I, even though I, you know, helped to create this experiment called BICEP that was looking for inflationary generated primordial gravitational waves uh, which some hailed as potentially a harbinger and uh, an imprimatur of grand unification maybe we can get into that Um, it has other uh it has other abilities in addition to just detecting b modes as if that's not enough because a inflation may not have happened as you say grand unification may not have happened i think we we know a lot more about the energetics of of you know of of unification than we do about you know 10 to the minus 36 seconds after uh the big bang singularity perhaps so uh you know i would not spend my money on it if i had infinite resources potentially maybe i would but in a finite resource planet Unless there are multiple cases, and yes, there are other things that have come out of the uh, out of um, the LHC, but clearly the Higgs is kind of it's on their masthead. It's it's what you see. It's it's uh, you know the reason that uh, that at least initially people were saying, yeah, we spent ten billion dollars to win a Nobel Prize uh, for for this discovery. But um, I want to talk about you know kind of the progress, if that's the, the right word. It's funny because you mentioned Congress. And remind me of an old joke. Like, what's the opposite of pro? When someone says, "I'll tell you the pros," what's the opposite of, of pro? And the answer is con. And then you say, "Well, then what's the opposite of progress?" It must be Congress. And uh, that's a dig at our, our lawmakers in the great city of Washington D.C. But I want to talk about the lack, or or perhaps you know may, maybe I'm overstating your case here. Um, you you give kind of a scorecard of where things could be going in the in the future back in 1988 when you wrote this book and presumably you wrote it in 87, 88, it does have a description of supernova 1987a which is obviously another uh, serendipitous uh, discovery but you have a list of I think nine things and I want to go over them with you if you'll indulge me Shelly because it's not so often we get to chat and uh, I think this is this is such a wonderful thing for young people to think about what did okay. Yeah, what did an eminent, you know, scientist think about the big picture questions? Because a lot of what I do is ask people, what would you advise young Sheldon, you know, to use a, a name of a, of a of a current hit TV show? What would you inv- advise young Sheldon to work on? So back in 1988, you said, first question, why are there so many basic particles? Do you think we have an answer to that question in the intervening Absolutely 32? Not. Okay. So that's an F. I'm gonna I'm gonna make the scorecard. I'll publish the scorecard. Well,
2: uh, remember the number. It depends on what you think the number is. I don't remember what the number was back then, but today, uh, it's down to a couple
1: dozen. Yes. Yeah. Well, there's what seven, seven. Yeah, seventeen elementary particles, including the Higgs, the neutrinos, their anti, the quarks. Why are there so many free parameters? And I guess this is like coupling constants. Do you think we've Approached a rationale for the number, the proliferation of coupling constants, or oh, three no
2: answers to those questions.
1: None, none. So that's two Fs. Um, how do we include gravity in the picture of, um, of of high energy particle interactions?
2: Well, the string theorists think that they have an answer to that question, but unfortunately, their string theory doesn't overlap very much with the kind of physics that interests me.
1: And would you say that the failure to observe supersymmetry and its concomitant relationship to string theory is sort of a significant strike against string theory, or would you not? No.
2: String theory makes no mention of where supersymmetry should live.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So no, that's not in no way would that should that be construed as evidence against string theory interesting
1: so if god hand i know you don't believe in god but if a god handed you a paper and said there is supersymmetry is completely excluded at all energy scales would that cast any doubt on the legitimacy of string theory uh i
2: i'm not quite that that is too hypothetical
1: <laughs> okay fair enough uh Yep. So you say how to, so I'll give gravity included in the standard model. I'll give that a tentative C. I'll give it a C for now.
2: Give it a C. It's, we, it's, we
1: don't, we don't grade inflate unlike you guys at Harvard and, and, and BU um, just kidding. Uh, so why are there three fermion families? That's a big question.
2: Why are there three? I don't know. Those, <laughs> are, questions, those are the kinds of questions I would like to have answers to.
1: Do you think people are are thinking about these questions or are they thinking about like, oh, well, this, you know, 17th order correction and a Feynman diagram? No, 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 no. Okay. Uh,
2: 17th order corrections are not my style. But uh, the, uh, I would love to know why there are three families of quarks and leptons. Uh, if, and I would like to know if they are uh, as identical to one another as we believe. Mm-hmm. Could there be something missing in our, plans. And I'm still hoping for an outrageous discovery from the Large Hadron Collider. It could be, for example, the uh, discovery of uh, a new particle that decays into a pair of leptons with the same charge, or uh, something like that, which just doesn't fit into the picture at all. And that would lead us to
1: perhaps uh, a new direction. Mm-hmm. And that brings up the next question. Uh, Why are the charges of the fermions the way they are? And I I would assume, based on what you just said, we don't have much more clarity about that.
2: Well, the standard model constrains them to a very high degree. So, for example, the uh, the integer character of electric charge, the fact that the electric charge and the proton charge are alike, aside from the fact that that had to be if life uh, could possibly exist, uh, that is incorporated within the standard model. We understand that.
1: Mm -hmm. And um, why do very large numbers appear to play a fundamental role in our theory? And you say, um, Dirac emphasized the philosophical view that all numbers that are truly fundamental to physics or mathematics like pi or the number of spatial dimensions three should be of order one, which is to say, neither very large nor very small. Thus, we may reasonably inquire, why do very large numbers play a fundamental role in our theory?
2: Of course, that's a central problem. Now, many people talk about the small value of the cosmological constant, and indeed that's mysterious. But mm-hmm. to me, equally mysterious and equally large uh, is the ratio between the mass of the, uh, of the top quark and the mass of the neutrino. Mm-hmm. In fact, those numbers are that, that, that's a number of the same crazy order of magnitude.
1: Yeah, that is that is true. I haven't I haven't think about that. On the opposite end, uh, you ask, is the photon really massless? And I think, um, maybe 32 years, we've we've gotten more credulity that it is perhaps massless. Would you agree? I think we can agree on that. Yeah, so that's an A plus. I give that an A plus. Funny. are neutrinos really massless? That's well, very that's interesting.
2: Answered, uh, very neatly, answered and very satisfactorily answered. All too satisfactorily. Again, it's just uh, it's just three neutrino species and a three by three mass matrix, and that seems to be the whole picture, despite all the noise about sterile neutrinos and uh, anomalies. I hope there were. I, would, I was hoping there were some anomalies, but there don't seem to be any.
1: Right. Has it surprised you that we've gotten most of the precise quantity? We still don't know the exact mass of the neutrinos. We we know that there's two different hierarchies they can adopt, but that the is it surprising that some of the most quantitative results have not come from laboratory experiments but from cosmological limits? It's amazing. Yeah. It's
2: amazing. And uh, and those limits, the cosmological limits, are expected to get stronger, and they're almost strong enough to pin down. Uh, which hierarchy, uh, which ordering of the masses is correct. That's right,
1: yeah. And even with the experiments, like I said earlier, one, one nice thing about the cosmic microwave background polarization measurements that I'm involved with, experiments like the Simons Observatory, will not only be able to set constraints or maybe detect primordial gravitational waves, we will be able to detect uh, the neutrino hierarchy or at least uh, you know, have a limit on the sum of neutrino masses, which should illuminate I would be absolutely, well
2: i'm sure there will be some uh, further constraints and that's yeah. very very important also uh, very uh, in, another indication of of excitement to come is is the disparity in experiments measuring the hubble constant the yes. hubble, hubble tension
1: mm-hmm. yes um, we that, talked about that with adam reese last week on the podcast we had a apparently. very interesting discussion with him and wendy friedman Uh, who you remember was involved with the Hubble key project. So one of the reasons Hubble was launched was to measure the Hubble constant, which makes sense to us. The reason it has a 2.4-meter diameter mirror is so it could see things like Cepheid variables at great distances. It wasn't known when it was designed, Lyman Spitzer and others, Designing it, that it would be used to measure supernova type 1a supernova, which would then reveal the presence of dark energy or accelerated cosmic expansion. But now it's being used by Wendy Friedman and her collaborators to look at really prosaic objects called red giants that have very well understood properties and are not confusion dominated by other stars and pixels and outskirts of galaxies. And she's getting a value and consistent with Adam Reese and his team looking at Cepheids and, and, and even other uh, projects. That's wildly inconsistent at the five sigma level with the cosmic microwave background forecast of what the Hubble constant should be today based on the early expansion of the universe when the universe was very simple. And that's a big surprise. And, and many people think that's one of the greatest controversies in, in physics today. What, what would you say about that?
2: I, it's, uh, I would say it's potentially very fruitful. Mm-hmm. If that tension is real, it tells us that uh, we're missing something very important and that our standard model of cosmology uh, is flawed.
1: Yeah, as implications for even things like the age of the universe. When I was in high school or college and even graduate school, the value of the Hubble parameter, which is a characteristic inverse of the age of the universe was unknown at the hundred percent uncertainty uh, level. In other words, we didn't know if the universe was 10 billion years old in 1989 when this book came out or, or if it was 20 billion years old, that's pretty, pretty wide range. And now we know it to the percent level. So cosmology is becoming more and more of a precision science, but hopefully as well an accurate science. Um, You mentioned uh, uh, the existence or lack thereof of magnetic monopoles. And you also Mm -hmm. Uh, wrote a poem, I guess, to Blas Cabrera, my old friend at, uh, at Stanford University, who detected the magnetic monopole on Valentine's Day, I think, 1986 or so. And, uh, and yet it was never observed again. And, and you ask him, beg him to discover monopole two. So, have you have we made much progress? I, I don't know of many experiments looking for magnetic monopoles. It's, it seems to be a very... Well, there have been many searches in the old days. And yeah. They were uniformly negative.
2: And nobody uh, rightly expects that uh, monopoles will be found. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's always that possibility, of course.
1: And yet, if we, if we um, uh, do you believe that there, I mean, isn't it true that if, they, if there exists a magnetic monopole, it would explain the value of the electronic charge in Dirac's theory?
2: Well, uh, I don't think it would get, I don't think the existence of the magnetic monopole has anything to do with evaluating the value of the electric charge of the electron, no.
1: And uh, the last question that you talked about back then is uh, an open question: Is does the pl- proton live forever? And I think uh, that we've gotten a lot more uh, clarity about as time has yeah, gone on.
2: For a Damn long time is what we've learned.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's right. There's not even
2: an indication of proton decay. <laughs> right. Yes. No, coming back to it was proton decay that 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 motivated the IMB experiment and the Kamioka experiments. Uh, and uh, serendipity has led to many discoveries from these devices. They led to the discovery uh, of, of, of neutrino oscillations, both atmospheric oscillations and, and solar oscillations. They led to the discovery of supernova, consequential discovery of super supernova neutrinos that had many consequences. And uh,
1: that's contrary to your statement, uh, why should we spend a lot of money on it? Who knows? All right. But, <laughs> I always say, yeah, that's true, but it's dangerous to to bet on serendipity. <laughs> uh, of course, yeah, the discovery of the CMB itself, uh, cosmic microwave background was discovered serendipitously. The discovery of dark energy or accelerated expansion, that was serendipitous. They thought the universe was slowing down, that the universe should be decelerating. And in fact, they found the exact...
2: I, I remember uh, uh, Gold, uh, Gerson Goldhaber calling me and telling me of this contrary discovery and what what could it possibly mean? Uh, he was they were amazed at what they had fallen upon.
1: <laughs> so uh, I know we only have a few more minutes uh, of your time. I just wanted I it would be you know remiss for me not to talk about views on on uh, on issues that are very uh, you know modern and current. But but to get your viewpoint on things like uh, for example the multiverse. Uh, the anthropic principle, Lenny's a big supporter of that, your friend Lenny Susskind, who was on the podcast yesterday. Um, what, what are your views on things like the multiverse, and are they a part of the you know, orthodoxy of physics? Should they be, or should they not be?
2: Well, I'm still of the uh, old-fashioned view that uh, the role of the scientist is to deal with observable phenomena and by their very nature, the other universes in the the multiverse are not observable phenomena. So I would draw a line at that point and uh, uh, disclaim any interest uh, in multiverses or other uh, phenomena that are inconsequential from the point of view of the observable, observable, scientists who observe or scientists who measure.
1: Mm-hmm. and uh similarly um what do you how would you advise a young Sheldon nowadays uh if if I'm gonna ask you things that uh, of interest that you might pursue or recommend pursuit uh, maybe your granddaughters or, or whatever uh, if they want to go into physics and then I'd also ask you what outside of physics would is fascinating to you uh for a young Sheldon or sheldina I don't know uh, but but to pursue yes,
2: uh, there's so much in science that that's uh, that ex- is exciting. And uh, personally, I I prefer the the useless scientists sciences, things that I do and things that you do. I think there's uh, so much more to learn about the universe. Uh, our observations are beca- I mean, this remarkable development of the past few decades. The the fact that. As you mentioned, that that uh, cosmology has become a precise science uh, is extremely important and uh, and very exciting, and there is so much more to learn. You will, I wonder if you will ask uh, Barry uh, what the likelihood is that the, that LIGO will be able to measure uh, the uh, the Hubble constant.
1: Yes, I will. I will absolutely. Yes. And upgrades to LIGO, they're planning an upgrade. We're going to talk about well, that tomorrow.
2: There's a Japanese version, which is coming online or has just come online. Yeah, so Now there are three facilities, that, uh, well, four facilities, the two American ones, and uh, Virgo in Italy, and now I forget the name of the Japanese, uh, super, which was has the advantage of being supercooled, of being yes. a cryogenic device.
1: Yes, that's right, and uh, and also with the addition, it's not just more sensitive, but now they can perhaps go after the polarization of gravitational waves, and perhaps reveal that they might, ha- you know, that there could be, you know, departures from the understood, accepted uh, two, you know, dual polarization nature. Um, uh, uh, also, what is the, uh, what are your feelings now, you know, decades later about grand unification SU five? Looking back, what what do you think its role will be, or, or will, will it not have a role, SU-5, or something like it in the future? Uh,
2: I don't know. Uh, it, I told you that one of the things that gave me the greatest joy was being confident that some highly contentious idea, like Gilman's Eightfold Way, uh, knowing it was true, and uh, at the same time knowing that others, my colleagues elsewhere, did not believe it. Uh, that, that was a terribly nice feeling, and there were times, uh, many times in my life when I felt that I knew something that other people don't. At this point, uh, I don't know the answers to any of the questions. I'm waiting for answers.
1: <laughs> but I'm uh, are- myself the arbitrage of knowledge. Uh, when you, when you know something is going to be born out, it allows you to, to make a, make a, make a killing in the marketplace of ideas. What about outside of physics? Uh, are there things, consciousness, um, simulation hypothesis? Are these things that physicists, uh, uh, talk about when it's physics adjacent, what, what things outside of physics interest you?
2: Well, uh, how could one not be interested in the, the new advances that are being made in virology in, in developing vaccines? These uh, vaccines that have the Americans have, uh, we Americans have uh, so far been testing the the uh, the two that have been uh, looking extremely likely to work are based on absolutely new technologies having to do with messenger RNA. Mm-hmm. They're not like the old-fashioned uh, uh things at all I uh, they're sufficiently new to make it rather difficult to uh, predict whether we can make enough of them to deal with the, the, the American population 20 million by, uh, yeah. by, by January is not enough uh, that's that that stuff is very exciting what they're doing is extremely exciting I read just yesterday or the day before about the uh, the the debate about wolves. Uh, You surely have read about that, whether we should encourage there to be more wolves so that they can eat the uh, weaker elk that have elk or deer or whatever they be that have developed this uh, terrible, uncurable prion moderated disease before the disease spreads to humans. Now, uh, there is absolutely no cure for this disease. Uh, Even cooking I'm told by the New York Times, even cooking the deer does not kill the prions because they never were alive. Right. So this, this is,
1: uh, Now you're making me really nervous, Shelley. This, this wasn't part of the deal. I, I don't want to like, uh, have to cancel my elk dinner tonight, but now you're making, (laughs) (laughs)
2: uh, what about my oh, dear salami too?
1: That's right. <laughs> that's right. No venison jerky for dinner. Um, what about life on other planets? If you had a wager, uh, first of all, I don't think we know enough about it. But but, do you believe that there is that life is abundant uh, throughout the universe, or is it more like Fermi used to say, "Where is everybody?" If, well, if there's first
2: of all, I'm absolutely convinced that there is life uh, on, on other planets than Earth.
1: Intelligent solar
2: <laughs> system absolutely convinced, but uh, just because of the enormous size of the uh, visible universe. So yes, of course, maybe in this galaxy, but if not, we have billions of others to choose among. So yes, there'll be life out there and there'll probably be intelligent life as well. Uh, Well, will we have the good fortune, if it is good fortune to encounter such uh, life? Uh, That of course, I don't know. Uh, this noise about about some chemical in the gas of uh, of, of
1: some planet uh, Venus, yeah, phosphine, uh, like uh, molecule, phosphine. I think that's gone away. In fact, well, actually, no. It's uh, we had on one of the uh, code uh, discoverers, Sarah Seeger, across the uh, Charles there at uh, MIT, and her team. They uh, announced a rebuttal to their refutation. So it's very intriguing. I'm going to have. I'm going to try and have both teams on the show to debate. I did have a podcast with Sarah Seeger of MIT about this. They're very confident. They say the confidence level has decreased a little bit, but it's not enough to uh, for them to retract the claim whatsoever. So it's a very interesting story about and the... And there are
2: all the, the watery moons out there that may have some kind of life on them, which... Uh... They may indeed, and uh, that's going to take a lot of money too. And now, would you uh, spend billions of dollars to make a, a trip to to a to a moon of Saturn to see whether there's life under the uh, under the uh, frozen?
1: Again, my my rule is I don't do single-purpose experiments. So if it's just to see if there's water, no. If it's just to see if there's if there are other things we can do, if we can learn about extreme. You know uh, uh solar system dynamics planetary formation things like that yes i might consider such a thing uh, but if it's just to see if there's water or ever was water billions of dollars it's, it's hard to justify but um but uh but that's very it's very fascinating what about have you heard of this simulation there's a possibility of forming of finding a second form of life on earth yes that's right yeah. Well, Paul Davies has been a guest on my podcast, and he talks about the shadow biosphere and kind of uh, using um, left-handed DNA and, and and all sorts of chiral uh, uh, creatures, etc. Yes, abiogenesis a, a is very fascinating. How did life come from mere you know molecules? It's, it's, this it's,
2: is one of the most exciting questions, the origin of life uh, uh, enterprise. Yeah. Uh, it's A lot of people have been working in this. Well, maybe a lot, not a lot. A number of people have been working in this direction. Some of the work is very skilled and very impressive, but uh, we've gotten nowhere as yet. Yeah,
1: yeah uh, that is that is that is often the case. So of course, you know, if you asked Einstein about the prospects to detect gravitational waves in 1915, he wouldn't have been able to guess that 100 years later, a scant 100 years later to the day almost. <laughs> um, uh, last question just about science, and then I'll ask you a couple of questions I ask everybody. Uh, who comes on the podcast. If you have a couple more minutes, Shelly, is that okay? Sure, let's go. Okay. So uh, there's a lot of talk about uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, you're, uh, you know, across the river neighbor, Max Tegmark at MIT has written about life 3.0, artificial intelligence, super intelligence, uh, book by Nick Ballstrom uh, kind of claims that the overwhelming likelihood is that we live in some sort of advanced simulation I wonder what do you, what do you think about such ideas that that the Moore's law application and the uh, inevitable kind of uh, artificial supremacy of you know perhaps by quantum computers that they will lead to the likelihood that we are actually simulated entities that just have this notion like Descartes used to think about of being a brain in a vat uh, of really being a brain in a vat but in reality we're uh, you know we're, we we do we don't have any other choice <laughs>
2: Uh, no, I don't think we're simulations, uh, that's uh, that's the realm of science fiction. But on the other hand, I was amazed when computers first uh, began to win at checkers, but I said they'll never win, win at chess, and then they, uh, they demonstrated they could, they could win at chess. And I said, of course, but they'll never, never be able to win at go. Uh, <laughs> And then they demonstrated that they can beat the best yo players consistently. So uh, there's no question that 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 the uh, competence of, of uh, computers is growing, uh, not just Moore's law, but something much more sophisticated with the methods of uh, machine learning that are now being used. Uh, and there are those who uh, feel that, that computers will become sentient and will mm-hmm. be smarter than us. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly, if they do become sentient, they will be smarter than us. Uh, And uh, will this ever happen? And does this pose a danger comparable to that of pandemics and nuclear war
1: and global warming? And Mm -hmm. the answer to that, in my mind, is no. (laughs) Okay, Shelley, you've been so gracious. I just have three more questions, if you'll indulge me. The first one relates to uh, something Alfred Nobel did when he wrote his Nobel will. This is my Hanukkah gelt uh, for my kids. This is a, this is a chocolate Nobel Prize. Unlike yeah, the one, yeah,
2: I still have a few of those downstairs.
1: <laughs> so, uh, Alfred Nobel, when he wrote his will, he made one of the requirements uh, the betterment of all mankind. And so, it wasn't just a material will where he was giving money to future intellects such as yourself to you know discover or invent new things, but they had to benefit mankind. Obviously. You know, what you discovered doesn't be- make a faster, you know, high speed Internet, but it did uh, enable the betterment of, of the human spirit to understand the deepest mysteries of mankind and, and of, of nature itself. I want to ask you, if you were to write an ethical will in the Jew- Jewish tradition, you're supposed to live to 120. That's the age Moses lived to. Um, so when you're 120 and you finally depart uh, this planet, um what ethical will would you want to leave what ethical wisdom not material uh but ethical guidance would you want to give to both your biological children etc but also your ideological uh, you know, uh ancestors our you know future future offspring i don't think i have an answer for that question hmm. So uh, the next question is going to also go into the future, and that involves Sir Arthur C. Clarke, and you may remember the movie 2001: A Space Odyssey.
2: I never saw it, but oh,
1: okay. Well, there are these objects that are basically time capsules, and they're meant—they're left by some alien civilization, and it's supposed to last for millions of years until humanity discovers it, but also is able to decipher it. So in the opening scene, there are some hominids on the plains of the African savannah, and they discover this time capsule, this monolith, and uh, and they can't do anything with it. They try to hit it or whatever. But then later, there's found to be one on the moon. And obviously, we've advanced tremendously technologically between two million years ago in Africa to uh, go get to the moon. So I want to ask you, if you had a billion year long lasting time capsule, something that was guaranteed, what would you put in it or on it, how would you want to summarize kind of what humanity is all about or the achievements of humanity today? Maybe it's in physics, maybe not. Uh, That would be kind of something that future civilizations could discover and remark about.
2: My hope, I can't say prayer because I'm not religious, is that human society will last for, let's say a thousand years. Uh, I'm not optimistic, that it will. There are too many outstanding threats. COVID is an example of the sort of threat that we face. It will not wipe out civilization, but who knows what the next pandemic will do. Uh, Species tend to die off, and there's no reason not to think that our species will die off. Uh, And we can help it with nuclear weapons, uh, for example, and we can help it by doing this wonderful experiment, uh, the greatest experiment ever performed is to dig up all of the fossil fuels on earth and burn them and see what happens. we're doing that and we're beginning to see what happens and what's happening does not suggest to me that there'll be anyone around in a million years, uh, let alone 10,000 years. A thousand years, maybe, but I'm much more worried about the so-called short term than uh, than deep time, I think so, there will be a deep time.
1: And yeah, I should point out, you're a member of the board of sponsors of the Bulletin of a, of the Atomic scientist. Where do you rank, you know, global warming compared to atomic, um, you know, Holocaust? Sort of in terms of existential risks to both the hu- existential risks to, risks
2: to society as we know it, a nuclear con a major nuclear conflagration. Not just a a random bomb shot off by a a pathetic little country, but a real conflagration such as the uh, things we were anticipating between the Soviet Union and the United States would be an end to civilization as we know it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The uh, climate change, uh, the way we're pointed uh, now toward uh, an inevitable. Thirty-foot rise in the uh, in the sea level, if if things go as they are, uh, would certainly end uh, society as we know it. It would end the, the, the coastal cities of the United States, for example. It would end uh, the country of Bangladesh. It would uh, totally reform, let alone Holland. It would totally reform uh, human society, mm. and we're on the road toward that. and uh, Well, what can I say this? My country has not done very much uh, positively over the last four years in this direction.
1: And then the last question I ask all my guests, uh, Shelley, involves not going forward in time. Now we're going to go back in time. And it relates to the name of this podcast. So Sir Arthur C. Clarke had three famous laws. Uh, The first one was any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. His second law was uh, for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. And his third law is the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. And that's the name of this podcast. Uh, And so I want to ask you, when you were 20 years old or 30 years old, uh, what seemed impossible back then, but by virtue of your courage became reality? Uh, and that uh, you would want to basically give advice to your former self.
2: I never thought there would be a, just a, uh, a Dick Tracy phone, for example. <laughs> <laughs> uh, such a concept was uh, thoroughly inconceivable. I remember uh, as a kid wondering if there would ever be such a thing as television, uh, but... Uh, impossible things came about. And to, to my father, uh, skyscrapers were incredible surprises. Elevators, airplanes. Uh, so the change, what we have seen in our lives, the development of the, uh, the fact that we all carry around these cell phones and can talk to each other for anywhere, uh, it, it is utterly amazing. So the change that Technology has wrought incredible and unpredictable changes, and technology will continue to do that, I have no doubt of that.
1: Very well. Well, Sheldon uh, Glashow, Shelley, to uh, to some of us, uh, I want to thank you so much for your graciousness and uh, all the inspiration that you provided. I can't recommend this book highly enough, Interactions. It's as relevant now uh, as it was in the late 1980s when I first uh, became aware of it. And as I said, it only took me 32 years, but I'm very glad I finished reading it earlier today. Uh, Shelly, thank you so much for spending your time on the Into the Impossible podcast. I hope we get to meet in person someday. Brian, it's been a pleasure. If you like this video, please subscribe and check out other videos and interviews I do with a multiverse of magnificent minds on the Into the Impossible podcast. See you next time when we go Into the Impossible together.
0: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating, Please subscribe, comment, share, and review. Watch on YouTube, listen on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or Stitcher. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. For more information and to sign up for Professor Keating's mailing list, go to briankeating.com. Follow Professor Keating on Medium and Twitter at Dr. Brian Keating. Dr. Brian Keating. For more information on the Clark Center, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clark Center for Human Imagination at the University of California, San Diego, in the Division of Physical Sciences. Eric Verry, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Produced by Brian Keating and Stuart Volko